Um, so speaking of the conference down in Orlando, um, where several of us went, not far from where we were staying, there is the famous Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. Now, how many of you remember Ripley's Believe It or Not from maybe TV shows or books or whatever growing up? I, I watched a number of episodes with my family. I mean, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I know even I've heard some of our, our teens love books of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Well, there's this Orlando Museum for Ripley's Believe It or Not, and here's how it advertises itself on its website. What to expect. Ripley's Believe It or Not, auditorium. I love how they say that. Sure to entertain the entire family, adults and children alike will be astounded by incredibly hard to believe, but undeniably true stories from around the world. Admire hundreds of artifacts, incredible art, animal oddities, pop culture memorabilia, interactive games, and more that you, you won't find anywhere else. Well, it's very interesting, kind of odd, but engaging. And this week, I chose to watch a few clips of some of the older episodes, and I saw men allowing their bodies to be conductors of electricity and literal lightning coming off their fingertips. Do not try that at home. A woman without legs, able to get pregnant, carry a baby to full term, and deliver a healthy baby boy. That's God's amazing miracle. The one that my wife didn't like so much, as I shared this with her, was a story of present-day cannibalism in India, which does still happen today. I'm not going to go into the details. But here's the point. Ripley's catchphrase of believe it or not leaves the viewer with no middle ground answer or response. We either believe what is presented to us, or we do not. This morning, from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 31 to 42, similarly, God allows for only two responses to Jesus and his work. We either believe or we don't. And given the human condition, even when presented with clear facts, the human condition, our tendency is to do the latter, tending towards cynicism and unbelief, apart from the grace of God. And I believe this morning the Lord wants to strengthen us here and have us walk out of here with a stronger faith, saying, Jesus, you are who you say you are. We believe all that you have done. We will follow you. In short, really, the point of this text and this message is believe Jesus and his work. Remember the whole point of the Gospel of John is summed up in John 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So let's look at this text this morning. If you are able, please stand as I read these words aloud. For these are the words of life, the very words of our God that he has given to us that we might know him and be satisfied in him alone. I'm going to start reading in verse 30 for context. Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? 
The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you were God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You may be seated. Pray with me, please. Father, I just pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Um, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, make us not just good hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So believe Jesus and his works. We have three points to cover this morning. First point is the unbelieving accusation. The second point is the validating defense. And the third point is the believing response. So first point, the unbelieving accusation we see in verses 31 to 33. Now, just for context and just remembering what has already transpired in the Gospel of John, Jesus was in Jerusalem as they celebrated the Feast of Dedication, which now today Jews celebrated as Hanukkah, the, fe the Festival of Lights. And Jesus is almost completed with his public teaching ministry. And last week we saw these amazing truths as over these 10 chapters, Jesus has done miracle after miracle after miracle, turning water into wine, healing a man born blind. And he says the works that Jesus does, he says about himself that these, these actually bear witness to him. And then we saw as the good shepherd, he says that his sheep hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him and they cannot be taken out of his hand nor out of the father's hand. What an amazing comfort to know that our God holds us, never lets us go. We are secure in Christ, in his hand. And then we saw at the end of last week's text that Ben preached in, in verse 30, that Jesus declared, and this is where I read at the very beginning of our text this morning, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is claiming equality with God, indeed, that he is God. So what and how do these Jews respond? How do they treat Jesus? Well, they respond to him not just in unbelief, but their unbelief takes action. They are accusing him. Indeed, it says here in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again. We saw in John 8, 59, they initially wanted to stone him as well. 
In John 8, 58 and 59, this is the reason why. Jesus said to them in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, because, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus, in saying before Abraham was, I am, he was equating himself at that time with God as well. So in this text, he's getting the same unbelieving accusation and response. This is blasphemy. Stone him. Leon Morris in his commentary said the Jews could regard the Jews could regard Jesus' words only as blasphemy. And they proceeded to take the judgment into their own hands. And it was laid down in the law that blasphemy was to be punished by stoning. And we see that from Leviticus 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes in the name, the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The interesting thing is how Jesus responds right away to them. And it appears that he responds with such calmness. And he answers them. Look in verse 32. He says, it says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He's trying to get them to respond to what he has done to back up his claims of divinity. But they don't even want to have any of that. They look past his works, probably because they couldn't answer him on that point. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says, Jesus' opponents could not refute his good works, but instead they insisted they were stoning him not because of what he did, but because of what he said. You, being a man, make yourself God. And here we have an instance of the Apostle John's irony, because his believing readers know that exactly the opposite is really true. Jesus being God had made himself man. Jesus is both God and man. He has always been God, existing as the eternal son of God forever. Before Abraham was, I am. But he, came, he became a man to be our substitute. Now just to illustrate this a little bit, Ben likes to give me a, a very hard time about something. He's got, I can hear it already, it's coming. That I am both a Steelers fan and an Eagles fan. Now Ben says I'm double-minded, but I think he's just ignoring the possibility is there. He doesn't want to recognize the possibility that I can be a fan of both teams at the same time. Now, the illustration does break down when they are playing each other. Then and only then do I have to choose a side, and recently my side, the Steelers, were incredibly horrifically destroyed by the Eagles. <laughs> He's up here saying, yep, double-minded. So, anyways, but here's the deal. I know that's a very imperfect illustration, but many people want to claim that Jesus was just a man. And they start off with that being their foundational assumption. They refuse to embrace, embrace him as both God and man. Maybe they like some of his teaching, but they do not want to embrace the entirety of who he was and is the eternal son of God. Amen. Why? Because it has implications. Unbelieving persons such as these noted in this passage refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and we want to be careful to avoid their error. And we need each other in this. 
Let me ask you this question. Do you believe Jesus for who he says he is? The writer of Hebrews says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another. See, this is community. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let me ask the question again. Do you believe in Jesus for all that he says he is? And the second question I want to ask is do you encourage others in your relationships to do the same? A number of years ago, when I was a pastor in another church, I had a young lady ask to meet with me. She told me of her situation, that she was dating an unbeliever, a guy who was actually of a different faith. I graciously listened to her talk through her challenges and her desire to not be alone. When she ended, I slowly walked her through this Hebrews 3 passage. And she, through tears, humbly responded to God's word knowing that what she was doing was wrong. She left the dating relationship, she followed Christ, and the last time I heard, she had a wonderful Christian marriage with several children. Doing this is not easy, but we need to be faithful to one another. Do you lovingly watch over each other enough to be encouraging each other in strong faith in Christ and recognizing who he is, believing in Jesus? That's point number one. Point number two, the validating defense, verses 34 through 39. Now this point may be a little longer than the other two, but let's just slow down here a second. (laughs) Richard Phillips talks about Jesus and his attitude and demeanor in the face of being stoned. He says this, we might imagine a person in this situation panicking, cowering back or trying to run away, but this man does none of these things. Apparently unfazed by the threat, he speaks calm words of challenge and rebuke. See, our Lord shows us how to respond to threats without being shaken. He's in control, though they want to kill him. Now, there may be a day that's coming for us when we face this kind of thing ourselves. Just wanna make this point. Jesus can and will strengthen us in the face of opposition as we follow his example. So here, not just he's standing calmly, but here's his response, this validating defense in the face of the Jews' accusation. This is a remarkable defense. Through it, he validates, proves his identity in several ways. The first way he does this is on the basis of Scripture. Now, remember, Scripture is our first and best foundation on which to build a defense. There is no other words or any argument or anything else that is going to be as solid as Scripture as we walk forth. When I built a deck on the back of my house a few years ago, I put in eight four foot deep footers with solid concrete. It took about 6,400 pounds of concrete, 80, 80 pound bags of concrete. Now I know if you're a contractor and you work in this industry, you're thinking, what were you doing? So here's my point though. My deck's not moving. It's, it's, 
and the, the, it's the sad thing is we are just we just signed an agreement to sell to sell the house. Um, so we're moving. It's not. But that's a sure foundation. Here Jesus is doing the same thing. Verse thirty-four. Jesus answered them, "Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods." If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Now, I'm going to cut us off here for a second. Just think about this, these two verses. Now, we shouldn't make too much about this, you are gods, as a certain church and the Mormon church does when it believes that we will become gods in some way in the future because that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is using a quote from Psalm 82, verse 6, where God says, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Colin Cruz in his commentary said, the statement you are God's was understood in later rabbinic exegesis to be God's word to the Israelites at Sinai when they received the law. God said to them, you are God's because in receiving the law and living by it, they would be holy and live like God's. Now note this. But because they departed from the law and worshiped the golden calf while still at Sinai, he said to them, you will die like mere men. Jesus, in using Psalm 82, is rebuking these Jews, identifying them with those who didn't follow God, who were wayward. And then he adds this little tidbit, which I believe is so helpful in our day and age. And scripture cannot be broken. He's basically saying in verse 35 that this simple word God's from Psalm 82 is scripture. It is the word of God. One word. One that feels a little obscure to us. But Jesus has such a high view of scripture. And J.C. Ryle says, few passages appear to me to prove the inspiration and divine authority of every word in the original text of the Bible. The whole point of our Lord's argument hinges on the divine authority of a single word. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is commanding these Jews and us that scripture is the very word of God, every word that we see. Oh, may God grant us greater conviction about this and an anticipation of how God's word is living and active and it will do what its intended effect is to accomplish. Now, Jesus goes on here to go on in verse 36. He says, if if he called them gods, if God called them gods, Verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, J.C. Ryle says it's, this, is, this is really an argument from a lesser to a greater. Okay, so he says this, if, if mere men are called gods, he who was the eternal Son of the Father could surely not be justly chargeable with blasphemy for calling himself the Son of God. So Jesus, even using scripture, is validating his identity as the one and only son of God. So Jesus uses the law of scripture to do this. It's a remarkable first way, and he's doing this in his defense. The second way he does this in his defense is he shows the works of the father prove his identity. And I love the way he starts this out. He says, if I am not doing the works of the father, 
then do not believe in me. Really, if you don't see particular works of the Father done by me, then, yeah, go ahead, don't believe me. He's not just simply claiming things, though, without backing them up. It's like, it's one thing to have someone say that they are a professional baseball player. Like, if, 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 if Dan Prokoviak came to me and said, I'm a professional baseball player, I would say, hey, show me your career stats. Maybe play in a game that I'm going to watch. Or show me your uniform. But if, they don't, if Dan can't do that, then I'm not going to believe him that he's a professional baseball player. But here Jesus, he is backing up his claims. He's not just claiming to be the son of God, but through his works, he is demonstrating and validating that he is the son of God. In verse 38, he says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And I love this. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, you know, if you don't believe me, at least look at what I'm doing. Then you will know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We are one. That's the second way Jesus is validating his defense. The third way here is the sovereign escape. In verse 39, we see again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. I love how John just kind of, it's like a little smooth transition, right? It's not just a smooth transition. What Jesus is saying here is, I am not at the mercy of men. The will of men will not supersede the will of God. And Bruce Milne says, the end of the road has been reached for the Jews. They grope, they grope for their stones, but he escaped their grasp. His hour has not yet come, though it will come soon. And Arthur Pink also says, I love this. This signifies that these Jews sought to apprehend the Lord Jesus that they might bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is the council, to declare him whether he's guilty or not guilty of blasphemy. But it says here, but they were unable to carry out their evil designs. Soon he would deliver himself into their hands, but until the appointed hour arrived, they might as well attempt to harness the wind as lay hands on the Almighty. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the son of God. No one takes his life. He will give it up and he would do it in his time and not in man's. And it's not now. So the scripture, Jesus' works, and his sovereign escape all validate and prove that he is the son of God. And prove what he has done validates it. Do you believe Jesus and his work? And do you encourage others to do the same? This is the validating defense of our Savior in these verses. Let's move on to point number three, the believing response we see in verses 40 and 41. Now, earlier I mentioned, just like Ripley's Believe It or Not, God only provides us with two options in responding to who Jesus was and is and what he has done. That first response is a response of unbelief that we've already covered in the Jews as they were accusing him of blasphemy. The second is now in focus. In verse 40, we see that Jesus goes away from the Jews across the Jordan and he comes to the region where John the Baptist had been baptizing and he remains there. And we see in verse 41, many came to him. Now, in that region, I would propose to you, I would propose to you that they would have known exactly what John the Baptist said about Jesus. 
And here is recorded for us in Holy Scripture, their response. It says here in verse 41, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. That's a believing response. In verse 42 it says, and many believed in him there. The only other and right response to the person and work of Jesus is this, believe. Believe not just who he says he is, but also believe his works. Everything that John the Baptist said about this man was and is true. And Richard Phillips in his commentary says this, I ask you to consider this if you are not a believer in Jesus. Who else could turn water into wine? Raise the sick and lame by his mere word. Feeding vast multitude with just a few fish and loaves of bread. And give sight to a man born blind. These are miracles recorded by the gospel of John. Let, let the facts impel you to belief. The gospels proclaim Jesus as the true son of God and the world's only savior. Should you not give some thought to this? Does this not warrant your open-minded study of this gospel? And friend, if you're here, I would just echo his words. Consider what Jesus says. Not just what he says, but what he has done. And speaking of him being the savior of the world, Jesus did not just come to do miracles in healing a blind man or feeding the multitude with just a few fish and loaves. He came for an even greater purpose. He came, that we'll see later in this gospel, he came to do a greater work, to atone for our sins through his death on the cross, being our perfect substitute. John the Baptist said this of Jesus in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Each of us has a need for this Savior. For we have all fallen short, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. In verse 20 in Romans 3, Paul says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There is no way for us to be good enough to approach this holy God, this just God. We can't. We are fallen. Indeed, Paul says in in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This morning, if if you are a Christian, it is good for us to remember that we have been saved from the wrath of God only by the greatest work that Jesus has ever completed in his death on the cross. And if this morning you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, it is good for you to consider that our God, our creator, is holy and just and will at the end of this age punish all sin. Everyone will pay for their sin unless they have believed in Jesus. They have looked not just at his claims, but also in what he has done. Unless they have put their faith in Jesus and trusted his work on the cross for them and their sins. We see back in Isaiah 53 how God promised this provision of a savior, this suffering servant. This was this is hundreds of years before Jesus came. He would come to serve by saving us through his suffering, through his death on a Roman cross. 
hanging by nails through his feet and his hands and a sword that pierced his side. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, we see this prophesied about him. In verse 5 it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the sovereign one, laid on him on Jesus the the iniquity of us all as Jesus hung on the cross friends we must recognize first that we put him there with our sins God put him there to make provision for our sins and he willingly went there to complete his greatest work of atonement for our sins. In his last minute of life, Jesus proclaimed in John 19, 30, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Oh, brothers and sisters, this morning you may feel weak in your faith. You may, you may be like the demoniac's father in the Gospel of Mark. You may have to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But know this, in his greatest work, your Savior paid for all of your sins, every single one of them. So relish in this truth. Join with the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 Verse one, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. Oh, unbelieving friend, what keeps you from putting all the weight of your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? to rescue you from yourself, your sins, and the wrath of God against your sins. Jesus is standing, waiting for you to come. Do not think you must clean yourself up, for if you wait until you do, you will never come. You will never be clean enough. Come to Jesus, and he will make you clean. We see at the very beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah writes, representing the Lord. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though, they shall, though their sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
Jesus will clean you. He will, he will justify you. You will be sanctified in Christ before the Father. Yes, you will still struggle at times as we know as Christians, but you will hear you are declared righteous in Christ by faith and you will be forgiven of all of your sins. So friend, do not delay. Today, if you hear his voice, come and believe in him and his work of salvation. Now as we move towards a close, brothers and sisters, we are, we are not just called to believe Jesus and his work from this text for ourselves, but we, almost also, we also must believe that it applies to and should be shared with others who do not know it yet. John the Baptist serves as a wonderful model and example for us to go and do likewise. Richard Phillips says, all John did was to show people their need and direct them to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Having heard, Jesus, having heard about Jesus, the people went to see him for themselves. And when they met him, they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. See, it does not require anyone special to do this. As ordinary Christians, we get to share an extraordinary gospel. You may feel weak, and the words may not come easily to you, but that's okay. You may need to take smaller steps and just befriending an unbeliever, maybe inviting them into your home for a dinner, just sharing your life with them. I love it when we go out to eat. I love to pray for our waiter or our waitress when we're about ready to pray for our meal. So sometimes these, these questions that I ask of them say, hey, is there anything we can pray for you? Sometimes they are leading to amazing conversations. Sometimes it's an invite to church. Sometimes like this week it was, no, nothing I need prayer for. It's like, okay, we're gonna pray for you anyway. So anyway, um, so, but here's the deal. There are people around us that do not know the Savior, that are wandering, they are lost. And right now they are under the just wrath of God over them. If they do not hear about Jesus, if they do not turn in faith, they will not know him. So let me just encourage you to take steps to move the barometer if you haven't been doing this. You do not have to be an apologist or a defender of the faith to share the gospel. In fact, apologetics can get in the way. The gospel really needs no defense. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for them. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way, best way for defending him for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, apologetics is helpful in some ways, but it does not save anyone. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ and him crucified, does. Paul says in the beginning of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, believe Jesus and it works, not just for yourself, but also through this powerful message 
that Jesus will save other people. This is why we are planting in the Mechanicsburg area. We're not relocating a number of us to make it convenient to get to church. We are going to be a lighthouse for those who do not know Christ. We want to be in a community that we're actually reaching out to. Do you know the demographics of this area? Only 10 to 13% of people in Mechanicsburg and Dillsburg attend an evangelical church. Most of the rest are unchurched or attending marginally Christian churches. When I mean marginally, I mean they're not preaching the gospel. As I've been studying these demographics, my heart has been burning because I want to go and indeed we are going. But church plant is not the only way to share the gospel. We do this in our local community here from the efforts of those here at Living Hope Church. We're called to do this in our relationships not, and, use, and to use such tools as bridge and other outreach to assist us. But we want to grow in making this more of our lifestyle because we have unbelievers all the time around us. And we want to be like John the Baptist, telling them their need for Jesus and then pointing to him. And God, in his might and power, through his spirit, can and will empower each of our efforts You might feel like you have little strength or ability to do this, but just like we prayed for church planting and God answered our prayers, let's pray for evangelistic zeal and strength. Let's see what God will do. After all, it's his mission and his glory at stake. He loves to hear hear and answer our prayers So such things. Let's let the gospel out and let's see what God will do. Let's pray.